The wind was howling, the sea raging, the waves beat relentlessly against the boat, sending water rushing over the sides, flooding the deck, and threatening to drown the small vessel along with its 13 inhabitants. Twelve men quaked in terror, trying in vain to bail water in an attempt to keep the ship afloat. One man, however, lay sound asleep in the stern, reclining upon a pillow in peaceful serenity, oblivious to the danger at hand. One of the disciples could take it no longer, and through the wind and the pounding rain, shouted at him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The man awoke, arose from his seat, and with absolute authority commanded the storm to cease and the seas to be still. Immediately the elements obeyed the voice of their Maker. He then turned to the twelve and with a note of sad astonishment said, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The twelve couldn't move as they stared in wide-eyed fear. For now a new fear had struck their hearts as they now found themselves in the presence of something far more terrifying than the storm. The man calmly sat down in the back of the stern. And as he did, they began to whisper to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? Or as Matthew records records it, What sort of man is this? The Gospel of Mark was written to answer that question on the lips of the disciples that fateful night. What sort of man is this? More than that, the Gospel of Mark was written to provoke that question in the first place. The Jesus presented in Mark's Gospel is a man of unceasing action. Hardly pausing to catch his breath, constantly moving, constantly working, rarely stopping to rest or to eat. Even in those rare moments when he does catch a nap in the back of the boat, for instance, he is interrupted by his disciples. Whether he is healing the sick or casting out demons, teaching in the synagogues or preaching in the countryside, Raising the dead or walking on water, transfiguring in glory upon the mount or cleansing the temple, battling the scribes and the Pharisees, or dying for sinners and rising again in glory on the third day. We are meant to read the Gospel of Mark and ask, what sort of man is this? And we are not left to wonder, for Mark answers that question with clarity and with conviction from the very outset of his gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel of Mark does not contain the exquisite narrative and the command of the Old Testament like the gospel of Matthew. It is not 
structured to give an orderly account, as is the Gospel of Luke. And it does not contain the exalted, breathtaking theology of the Gospel of John. It likely is not the first Gospel to which you would turn if you wanted to read about the life and teachings of Christ. And if Mark is not your favorite Gospel writer, you certainly would not be alone. For much of the history of the church, Mark, in fact, was virtually ignored. Considered in ancient times to be, quote, an inferior abridgment of Matthew, end quote. And in more modern times, quote, a rather artless and pedestrian gospel, end quote. The church father Augustine once wrote that Mark imitated Matthew like a lackey, and is regarded as his abbreviator, end quote. In more modern times, one New Testament scholar wrote that the point is settled. The author of Mark was a clumsy writer unworthy of attention in any history of literature. But the consensus opinion of Mark has changed dramatically in recent history, and primarily for two reasons. First, It has now been satisfactorily established that Mark is the earliest of the Gospels, the first to ever be written, which means that far from being a cheap knockoff of Matthew's Gospel, Mark, in fact, is the original evangelist. In fact, when Mark wrote his Gospel, he was inventing an entirely new genre of literature that the world had never before seen. Nothing like a gospel had ever been written. And secondly, we understand better now the circumstances which called forth the gospel that Mark wrote. And when viewed in light of those circumstances, Mark's gospel now appears to us as nothing short of brilliant. The prevailing opinion of Mark's gospel today is perhaps best expressed by the evangelical commentator William Lane who said, quote, a careful reading of the gospel will serve to introduce the author as a theologian of the first rank who never forgot that his primary intention was the strengthening of the people of God in a time of fiery ordeal, end quote. So Mark's gospel doesn't contain the features which draw readers to Matthew or Luke or John. Mark's gospel isn't going to give you a masterful portrait of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises like Matthew does. He's not going to give you a biographical account of Jesus' life set down in strict chronological order like Luke does. And he's not going to take you to soaring heights of theological expertise, as does John. That wasn't Mark's purpose. Rather, what Mark did was to sit down when his church needed him most and to record a fast-paced, no-nonsense account of the saving ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, an account designed to knock you to your knees in awe and wonder and no small amount of fear, asking, what sort of man is this? 
when his church was assaulted on every side, Mark sat down to write for a persecuted people the account of a Savior worth following, a Savior worth trusting, a Savior worth suffering for, and ultimately a Savior worth dying for. My aim this morning is to lay a strong foundation for our study of the Gospel of Mark, a study that I estimate will take us something around a year to complete. And in order to understand Mark's gospel, in order to know what we're doing and where we're going throughout this next year, we need to know something about Mark himself. By the end of today, I want you to feel like you know Mark. I want you to feel like you know where he's coming from when you sit down to read his gospel. So we need to know something about Mark and we need to know something about this book that he wrote. Which is why we're not going to venture past verse 1 today, but rather we'll take our time to examine six preliminary details related to this earliest gospel. We're going to look at the genre. What is a gospel? We're going to look at authorship. Who was Mark? We're going to look at the source. Where did Mark get his information? We're going to look at the date. When did Mark write this gospel? We're going to look at the recipients. For whom did Mark write this gospel? And we're going to look at the purpose. Why did Mark write this gospel? Let's begin with the literary genre. What is a gospel? That's what Mark himself calls it in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What is a gospel? A euangelion in the Greek. A word that literally means good news or good message. The word was used a lot before the advent of the New Testament. It was used for good news that was sent home from the battlefield by the victorious side. When a victorious army would conquer a particular people in military strength, they would send back a messenger who would run. That messenger was called an evangelist. And he would run back to the town to tell all of the townspeople the good news of victory that had been accomplished elsewhere. And Mark takes this word and he applies it to this book. It appears that Mark was the first person ever in the history of written literature to use the word gospel to apply to something that he wrote. So what did Mark mean by calling this a gospel? William Lane defines a gospel as a witness document that found its creative impulse in the early apostolic preaching of salvation through Jesus Christ. It is written to be neither, this is important, I'll explain why. It is written neither to be a formal historical treatise nor a biography of Jesus, but proclamation. Let me unpack that definition this morning and tell you why it matters. Notice first that a gospel is a written record of a verbal proclamation. In other words, the writing did not come first. The preaching came first. 
And not just any preaching, apostolic preaching. And not just any apostolic preaching, but the apostolic preaching of salvation through Jesus Christ. A gospel, whether it be Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, is the written record of the apostles' preaching about salvation in Jesus. The gospel authors then were those who heard the original apostles preach about the life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus, and then, sometime later, wrote down a summary of what they had heard. And in the case of Matthew and John, who both were apostles themselves, they not only heard the apostolic preaching of Jesus, they were the apostolic preachers of Jesus. The immediate impulse of the apostles after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and after the Holy Spirit descended upon the church at Pentecost, the immediate impulse of the apostles was not to squirrel themselves away somewhere in a room and write down an account of the life of Jesus Christ. Their first burning impulse of their heart was to go out and preach Christ. And preach the salvation that is found only in him. And that is exactly what they did for the first 35 years of the church. That's why we don't have gospels from the first three decades. In fact, it's not until the mid-60s that the gospels begin to be written. The gospel of Jesus Christ is primarily intended to be heralded preached, mouth to ear. But by the mid-60s A.D., the apostolic age was coming to a close as one by one, the apostles of Jesus began to be martyred for their faith and testimony to Christ. It therefore became necessary for the apostolic preaching to be written down. And so the Holy Spirit inspired four men four separate witnesses to record in four different ways and for four different distinct purposes the apostolic preaching of salvation through Jesus Christ in order that the church, in order that we, 2,000 years later, might have a continual, authoritative, apostolic witness to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you why this is important. It means that the Gospels are not biographies of Jesus in the modern sense. Nor are they scholarly historical treatises. They're not intended to be. That's not what, what in fact the closest we come is Luke. But that's not what Mark sat down. He didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write a biography of Jesus. What he said was, I'm going to sit down and summarize the preaching of Jesus that I've heard for three and a half decades. The intention of the gospel authors was not to write a detailed, strictly chronological account of all that Jesus said and did. They are recording the verbal proclamation, the apostolic preaching of a person in order to suit a particular theological purpose. Therefore, they arrange their Gospels thematically rather than chronologically. Now, there is 
a general chronological flow to the Gospels. For instance, all of them begin the ministry of Jesus at his baptism and bring it to a culmination at his crucifixion and resurrection. But one author in between those two bookends may put one event here and another event here and another teaching here, while another author may put the same events in a different order and put the teachings and connect them to different events. Why are they doing that? Are they confused about the timeline? No. They don't intend to give us a timeline. They're giving us a theological proclamation, a written proclamation about who Jesus is and the salvation that is found only in Him. This also accounts for why the language and description of events may differ in certain details. For instance, in the account of the calming of the storm, did the disciples say, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him, Mark? Or what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves, the wind and the waves obey him, Matthew? Which one did he say? Not the point. The Gospels were not transcribed from audio tapes of Jesus' sermons or videotapes of Jesus' miracles. They are written records of three decades of apostolic preaching. Apostolic, Holy Spirit-inspired recollections of all that Jesus said and did, proclaimed countless times in countless contexts over 30 years. Now, the reason why I go into this is because sometimes people will put, let's say, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, and they'll set them side by side, and they'll begin to nitpick over details. They'll begin to nitpick over minute differences in the wording or the chronology of events, and I submit to you that if you do that, you're missing the point, and you're trying to make a Gospel something that it's not. It's not a biography. It's written preaching. This in no way undercuts the doctrine of inerrancy. Because as a gospel, if you will receive the gospel of Mark for what it is, namely a gospel, everything Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote is utterly and absolutely accurate and authoritative. So one more time, a gospel is an inspired written record of the inspired apostolic preaching of salvation through Jesus Christ. Understanding that point will alleviate much of the tension that some readers feel when they come across two, three, or sometimes even four slightly different versions of the same event or teaching. Slightly different versions, though never contradictory accounts. If you ask four eyewitnesses to describe the same event, you're going to get four slightly different accounts of the one event that happened. That's why we have four witnesses and not one only. Finally, understanding what a gospel is helps us understand that we cannot be passive observers of this book. Let me tell you what you can't do over the next year. You cannot read or hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and conclude, well, that's a nice story, and that's fairly interesting. What's for lunch? A gospel does not leave that option open to you any more than a good sermon does. 
A sermon is a proclamation that calls for a response, and so is a gospel. A gospel is written in order to call readers to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. After reading a gospel, you must either determine that what you have read is false and therefore should be discarded, or that it is true and you have no reasonable recourse but to fall to your knees and declare that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God and Lord of all. And it's going to call you to that verdict. Jesus is going to call you to a response over the next year. Probably weekly, we pray. Next, we consider the issue of authorship. Well, like the other canonical gospels, this gospel nowhere identifies an author. Paul would identify himself, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Corinth, right? The gospels don't do that. They're anonymous. But very early in the history of the church, by the mid-second century, the title, The Gospel According to Mark, was added to the document. And the early consensus of the church was that the author was John Mark, who was a figure that appears at a handful of points throughout the New Testament. I'm going to give you two very early testimonies to Mark's authorship of the gospel in order to suffice to prove this point. And let me tell you why you ought to care about this. All right, I'm not taking anything for granted this morning. Um, Just because it's in the Bible, some of you may or may not accept that as sufficient authority. So let me step back and say, all right, why should we believe this guy who wrote this book? How does he know what he's talking about? Because we're normally not in the habit of accepting anonymous documents as being reliable. Well, very early in the history of the church, the tradition was established and authenticated that John Mark, New Testament figure, was the author of the gospel that had come to bear his name. Two two witnesses to that. The first comes from a man named Papias, who was the bishop of Hierapolis in modern-day Turkey. And he wrote in a book called Exegesis of the Lord's Oracles around the year 140. And the elder said this also, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord, but not however in order. For neither did he hear the Lord, nor did he follow him, but afterwards, as I said, Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearers. You get that? Okay, this is Peter's preaching and Mark summarizing what Peter's preaching, but not as though he were drawing up a connected account of the Lord's oracles. So then Mark made no mistake in thus recording some things just as he remembered them. For he took forethought for one thing, not to omit any of the things that he had heard, nor to state any of them falsely. Okay, that is a bishop in modern day Turkey, Uh, well a second century bishop from a town in modern-day Turkey, who was authenticating this gospel for his hearers, saying, here's why we receive this as Holy Scripture. Another early church father from the late second century, a man named Clement of Alexandria in Egypt, testified thus, quote, When Peter had publicly preached the word at Rome and by the Spirit had proclaimed the gospel, 
that those present, who were many, exhorted Mark as one who had followed Peter for a long time and remembered what had been spoken to make a record of what was said, and that he did this and distributed the gospel among those that asked him. So according to Clement of Alexander, what happened in Rome was the hearers, probably because Peter had been martyred, we'll talk about that in a second, said, we want somebody to write down all that Peter told us about Jesus. Mark, you've been with Peter for a very long time. We want you to do it, and Mark did. So on the basis of such strong and unanimous testimony from the early church, the authorship of the Gospel of Mark has really never been in serious doubt. So we can ask the question then, who is this Mark who wrote this Gospel? Well, he's first introduced to us in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12 as John Mark, where we find out that his mother's name was Mary and that the early church in Jerusalem used to meet in her house, which tells us that Mark came from a family of some means. If they have a house in the city large enough to host a significant gathering of Christians. Many think, and for good reason, that this is the same house where the Last Supper was held. John Mark was therefore a very young man, a teenager perhaps, when these events, the events that he records, transpired, and he had seen Jesus with his own eyes, probably even after his resurrection. It is likely that Jesus hosted the Last Supper above his bedroom. Mark's cousin was Barnabas. We learn about that in Colossians 4.10. And for this reason, Barnabas probably persuaded Paul to take Mark along with them on their first missionary journey, Acts 12.25. Things did not go well on that first missionary journey. They ran into tribulation on the island of Cyprus. And by all accounts, Mark got spooked. He got scared, and he quit. Acts 13, 13, returning to Jerusalem. Therefore, several years later, when the time came for Paul and Barnabas to embark on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to give Mark a second chance, and Paul refused. This caused what Luke called such a sharp disagreement between the two friends and fellow missionaries that they had to part and go separate ways in their ministries. Barnabas took uh, Mark with him back to Cyprus, and Paul took Silas on up into Asia Minor and eventually Macedonia and Greece. We then don't hear anything else about Mark for a decade, but about 10 years later, Paul writes some very interesting things about Mark. Evidently, Paul eventually forgave Mark for quitting on him when they were in Cyprus, and the two had been reconciled because in Paul's late letters, Paul reveals Mark to be a co-worker with him in the ministry of the gospel. Colossians 4.10 mentions that, as does Philemon 24. In fact, in Paul's last letter, written in about 67 A.D., 2 Timothy, Paul even gives this instruction to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, get Mark and bring him with you when you come to Rome, for he is very useful for, to me in my ministry. After Paul's death, or at, after Paul's imprisonment, I should say, Mark evidently accompanied Peter also during his ministry in Rome, for Paul 
or for Peter mentions him in 1 Peter 5.13 as writing from Rome. The apostles Peter and Paul were then martyred in Rome during the Neronian persecution around the years 66 to 67 AD. And after that, a well-established church tradition states that Mark then traveled across the Mediterranean down to Alexandria in Egypt and was instrumental in establishing the church in that great North African city. And according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, it was in Alexandria that Mark was eventually arrested, was tied with ropes, was drugged through the cobblestone streets of Alexandria until his body was broken and torn, at which point he was thrown back into jail for the night. When the next morning came, they tied him up, they did it again, and it was on that day that Mark died a martyr for the Christian faith. So what can be said about the author of this gospel? I think that we can say that Mark is a man who is eminently qualified to write the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why? He knew Jesus personally, though he was quite young at the time. He was there when the church was born. He was there at Pentecost. He was there through the first several years of the apostolic preaching in Jerusalem in Acts 2, in Acts 3, in Acts 4, in Acts 5, all the way to Acts chapter 12. The church is meeting in Mark's home. He sat under the apostolic preaching and ministry throughout his life. He knew both Paul and Peter intimately, accompanying them on missionary travels. He knew what it was to fail. And he knew what it was to be forgiven and restored. Mark knew personally those twin experiences that Jesus speaks about in Mark 8.35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. As a young man, Mark had abandoned the gospel ministry under the threat of persecution. In other words, he had tried to save his life and in the process he had lost it. But he had experienced the power and the mercy of God's sovereign and persevering grace. He had learned the lessons that only come through failure. And he grew on to be used mightily of God. And near the end of his life, God gave him the honor of writing the world's first gospel. And a few years later, he gave him the honor of sealing his testimony with his blood. I want you to know Mark, and I want you to handle his book with reverence because these these are the words of a faithful martyr of Jesus Christ. Now, as to the source of Mark's gospel, as qualified a saint as Mark was, the fact remains that he was not an eyewitness of much of what he records. So, where did he get his information? Where did he get his information about the Galilean ministry and what Jesus said and what Jesus did up there? Well, to a great extent, we've already answered that question. A gospel is a written record of the apostolic preaching of salvation through Jesus Christ. And Mark spent his entire life listening to the apostles preach about Jesus. He was there from the beginning at Peter's sermon at Pentecost and the birth of the New Covenant Church. For years and years, Mark was a part of the church in Jerusalem while the apostles were still there personally leading it. 
Peter preached in Mark's living room. Beyond this, however, Mark shared intimate, personal acquaintances with both the apostles Paul and Peter, and according to an early and strong church tradition, it was especially Peter whose influence stands behind Mark's gospel. No less than six witnesses in the early church, writing between the year 140 and 200, six witnesses writing between 140 and 200, attest to Peter's apostolic authority behind Mark's gospel. Let me give you just two of those six. The first comes from Irenaeus, writing in about 175. He's a representative of the prevailing early church opinion. Irenaeus says, And after the death of Peter and Paul, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, also transmitted to us in writing the things preached by Peter. And then a century and a half later, the church historian Eusebius recorded this in the early 4th century. He says, A great light of religion shone on the minds of the Roman hearers of Peter, so that they were not satisfied with a single hearing or with the unwritten teaching of the divine proclamation. But with every kind of exhortation, they entreated Mark, whose gospel is still in existence, seeing that he was Peter's follower, to leave them a written statement of the teaching given them verbally. Nor did they cease until they had persuaded him, and so became the cause of the scripture called the gospel according to Mark. And they say that the apostle Peter knowing by the revelation of the Spirit given to him what had been done, was pleased at their zeal and ratified the Scripture for study in the churches. That's a very interesting statement because it says that the tradition of the early church was that not only is this the written record of Peter's preaching, but that after it was written, Peter read it and said, this is true, and handed it to the church. So just as there should be no doubt about Mark's personal qualifications to write a gospel, neither should there be any doubt as to Mark's sources. Well, now let's look at the date of writing. Uh, there are two lines of evidence, one external and one internal, that suggest that Mark wrote his gospel in the latter half of the 60s A.D. There is, and you may have a little bit of this in maybe in the the, the commentary of, of your Bible, there is a thought out there that Mark might have written in the 40s based on a manuscript evidence, but that's sketchy. I'll just leave it at that. If you want to talk about that later, we can. But the prevailing opinion is that Mark wrote in the late 60s AD in Rome during the Neronian persecution. All right, two evidences for that. The first is external. And it comes from the witness of the early church. For instance, in a document called the Anti-Marcionite Prologue, written between 160 and 180 A.D., we read that Mark was the interpreter of Peter, and after the death of Peter himself, he wrote down the same gospel in the regions of Italy. Okay, Irenaeus says the same thing. Clement of Alexandria states that Mark wrote his gospel while Peter was still alive. And so while the early church differs on whether Mark wrote before Peter's death or after Peter's death, they all agree unanimously that he wrote around Peter's death during the persecution of Nero in Rome. Okay, the second line of evidence comes from within the text. 
At a number of points throughout his gospel, Mark emphasizes the reality and the necessity of persecution and of suffering for Jesus. Let me give you just one example of what we're going to find in this book. Mark 13, verses 9 to 13, Mark records these words of Christ. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The Jesus presented in Mark's gospel is a suffering Savior who calls all who would follow him to suffer with him, to take up their own cross and to follow him even unto death. This gospel was written to help a persecuted people persevere. Therefore, the internal and external evidence together suggests that Mark wrote it sometime during the Neronian persecution. I'm going to put the date at between 66 and 68 A.D. Recipients. Well, the first recipients of Mark's gospel has already been made clear from the evidence marshaled in the question of authorship, source, and date. Mark wrote his gospel in Rome for the church at Rome which was by all accounts a primarily Gentile congregation by that point. And this would account for the Gentile character of the gospel. For instance, Mark feels the need to translate Aramaic terms. He explains Jewish customs. He omits items of particular Jewish interest that Matthew and John record, like Jesus' genealogy, Luke records that. He uses far fewer Old Testament references than either Matthew or Luke. He uses the Roman standard for calculating time. He uses Latin expressions that would have been known to his recipients but unknown in other parts of the world. And interestingly, he mentions Simon of Cyrene, the man who carried Jesus' cross, who was the father of a man named Rufus, Mark 15, 21, Rufus who became a prominent member of the Roman church, Romans 16, 13. So Mark wrote his gospel for the church at Rome, a church that had been built on a very solid foundation, which helps explain why Mark is the way it is. Think about the Roman church by the time Mark sat down and wrote it. Not only had they received a letter from Paul, a letter that contains the most elaborate, exquisite, masterful treatment of the gospel known to man, but both Paul, Acts 28, and Peter, 1 Peter 5, had spent significant time in Rome preaching to the Roman church. They had the theology, which is probably why Mark doesn't feel the need to record as many of the teachings of Jesus as Matthew and Luke and John do. The church at Rome had access to all of the theology. 
What they didn't have was a gospel. Finally, I think it's important to discuss the reason why Mark wrote, his purpose, the occasion which caused him to write. Put yourself in the shoes of the Roman church. For the most part, life was quiet for the church at Rome during the first few decades of her existence. Jewish Christians had been converted, Jews, Jewish pilgrims rather, had been converted in Pentecost from Rome. Travelers, pilgrims from Rome were in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost when Peter preached his sermon. They stayed there for a while, they were scattered by persecution, they took the gospel back to Rome, and the church was planted. The church was in existence long before Paul got there, long before Paul wrote his letter. It was established fairly early. And for the first few decades of her existence, life was pretty quiet. Rome at that time was a city approaching a million people, and it was just an enormous menagerie, a mixture of different cultures and different religions. And for that reason, this, this new group called Christians were enabled to fly under the radar for a time. Just one of many different religions in Rome. But all of this changed in the summer of 64, when a horrific fire swept through Rome. It began in the market near the Circus Maximus, but soon spread throughout the city. And in in the end, 10 of the 14 Roman city wards were affected. Seven were severely damaged, and three were reduced to rubbish and ash. A rumor soon spread that the fire had been officially ordered by the Roman Emperor Nero, who had become increasingly unstable in his public life. The Roman historian Suetonius outright blames Nero for the fire. The historian Tacitus is a little bit more reserved, and he suggests, implies the same. Try as he might to quell these rumors with acts of civil benevolence, popular resentment towards Nero only grew. And so Nero decided that what he needed was a scapegoat. And he found a suitable one in the Roman church, which had been increasingly growing. Nero publicly blamed the Christians for the Roman fire and lashed out at them with such cruelty that even the pagan Romans, with no sympathy for the Roman church, cringed at the barbaric treatment that they received. For instance, Tacitus, the Roman historian, records this, quote, Neither human resources nor imperial munificence, just pouring out money in different places, nor appeasement of the gods eliminated sinister suspicions that the fire had been instigated by Nero. To suppress this rumor, Nero fabricated fabricated scapegoats, and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then, on their information, large numbers of others were condemned, not so much for incendiarism, arson, as for their antisocial tendencies. Their deaths were made farcical. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified, or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. 
Nero provided his own gardens for the spectacle and exhibited displays in the circus, at which he mingled in the crowd or stood in a chariot dressed as a charioteer. Despite their guilt as Christians, Tacitus is no friend of the Christians, despite their guilt as Christians and the ruthless punishment it deserved, the victims were pitied. For it was felt that they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality rather than to the national interest. The suffering of the Roman church was horrific, beyond description. They were literally driven underground into the catacombs. And when Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified, upside down according to tradition, the fear and the dread of the Roman Christians must have reached a critical mass. It was into that context that Mark sat down and wrote his gospel. William Lane, in his fantastic commentary on the gospel of Mark, he goes on for two pages about how Mark's gospel would have spoken directly to the situation of the Roman church. So put yourself in the context of the Roman church. Friends and family that you know have already been drugged before the magistrates, forced to either deny Christ or confess that they were Christians, at which time they were torn to pieces by wild dogs, slain in the circus Maximus, run over by chariots in the circus, or were covered in pitch, placed up on a stake, and burned as torches to light the gardens of Nero. Your friends, your family, may be you today, or tomorrow, or the next day. And then Mark writes for you this gospel. And when you read it, here's what you find. You've been driven into the catacombs just as Jesus was driven into the wilderness. You face wild beasts in the arena, and you read about Jesus who faced the wild beasts in the desert. You face misrepresentations and scurrilous rumors, just like Jesus. You've been betrayed by your friends and your family. So was Jesus. In Mark's gospel, Jesus speaks over and over about the cost of discipleship, a cost that you know only too well. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is clear that perseverance through persecution is the essential mark of true saving faith. And that's the choice that you're faced with at some point in an uncertain future. Finally, in Mark's gospel, you find that Jesus has already gone before you down the path of suffering. He does not call you to walk a path, a path that he has not already trod. Are you betrayed? So was he. Are you falsely accused? So was he. Are you condemned? So was he. Are you scourged? So was he. Are you crucified? So was he. And he overcame death by resurrection, and so will you, if you persevere. Jesus was not calling his disciples to an experience that he did not intimately know. Mark is going to present Jesus to us as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In Mark's gospel, 
the Roman church found a Jesus who identified with their sufferings. So the Gospel of Mark was written for the persecuted church. And by the inspiration and preservation of the Holy Spirit, it was written for the persecuted church in first century Rome or the persecuted church in 21st century Iran or the persecuted church in America in the not-so-distant future. The Gospel of Mark is, a, is the Gospel for the suffering church. So let me end with one final question. What will you find when you read the pages of Mark's Gospel? I've told you what the Roman church found. Now I want to make the question personal, and I want to ask, what will you find? I'll tell you exactly what Mark intends you to find. Look at the very first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark intends for you to find a person, namely Jesus of Nazareth a historical Hebrew person, one who was raised before the eyes of a community, one whom they called Yehoshua, the Lord is salvation. He intends for you to find Jesus of Nazareth, a person with flesh and blood who lived in Palestine during the first three decades of the first century, a real person who really lived, who really suffered, who really died, and who really rose again. Mark intends for you to find more than that, a Messiah, chapter 8 and verse 29. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the one whom God promised to send into the world to bring salvation to his people. Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus demonstrates his Messiahship by healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, making the lame to walk, cleansing the leper, casting out demons, calming the storm, raising the dead, and most spectacularly of all, declaring sinners forgiven by his own divine authority. In this gospel, Mark intends for you to find a suffering servant who is also a redeeming Savior. One who declares that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Mark intends that you would find yourself among that many. Finally, Mark intends for you to find the Son of God. What sort of man is this? Demons flee from his presence. The dead rise at his command. Even the wind and the waves obey him. And by the time we come and see the suffering servant upon the cross, Mark intends for you to have the same reaction as the Roman centurion who watched him die. Truly this man is the Son of God. What will you find on the pages of Mark's gospel? you will find Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now the question remains, what will you do with Him?